Good morning, Circle Church of Christ. Surprise, you've got me for this morning. Uh, I'll be doing your sermon today. Uh, as uh, our minister, uh, Thomas, is on vacation. We're going to be studying from the book of Luke, chapter 4. But before we get into all that, I'm going to tell you a little something. To remind you, if you were here in the last few years, um, you'd know that we did Vacation Bible Club on Wednesday nights during the summer for several years. Well, my wife and I, we've done a lot of acting with the kids and little skits here and there. And one of the skits we had one year was uh, Farmer George and uh, his wife. Well, we had one skit during that time and I'm in my overalls and everything, and I come up and she's made a beautiful pie. And she tells me, now don't eat that pie, that pie is for supper. Well, she's wagging her finger, don't you dare eat that pie. Well, Farmer George, he's, he's a mature man, he doesn't eat pie he's not supposed to eat. But that pie sat there, and when my wife left, I just started looking at that pie longingly, until, yes, you know what happened, I gave in and ate the pie. Well, it was more like splatting my face right into the pie. And then looking up at all the children with pie all over my face, and it was very evident that I had disobeyed my wife. And as I looked out over the crowd, Josiah Swick was crying. And I thought, oh, I scared the poor boy because I got all this cream on my face and I looked like a monster or something. I scared him. But I come to find out later when talking to his mother that no, it wasn't you scared him, it's that you disobeyed. You said you could restrain yourself. You said you weren't going to eat the pie, but you ate the pie. And little Josiah got very upset with me and, uh, about not being able to withstand temptation. Well, today we're going to be talking about temptations of Christ, chapter 4. And it's, it's temptation slash testing. Well, the two kind of have, you know, a similar impact they can, they can kind of be intermingled in, in the conversation. But there's two distinct differences that I see. And with temptation, your intent is to get the person to fall. Your tem in temptation, the goal is to f get the person to sin. In testing, it's deciding, are you going to do what we ask you to do? Are you going to be able to withstand this challenge in your life and do the right thing? You see, we don't always see this effectively represented in the Bible, but, you know, if you take your soldiers out before they go to war, you want to test them. You want to make sure they're battle ready. You want your athletes to be ready to play. So you test them in practices, and you test them over and over again to make sure they are capable of doing what's required to them. Well, we're going to see that here today in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And... It says temptation, but it also may have been a time of testing. I think that we need to look at it clearly there. Uh, the thing we need to do is set the stage first. So John the Baptist is on the scene in chapter 3 of Luke, and he's preparing the way. Now, he's preparing the way to, for someone who's coming that, whose sandals he's not worthy to untie. Well, long story short, we know that the Messiah is coming, and he is preparing the way for the Messiah. Well, Jesus enters the scene, and John baptizes him. Now, John says, oh, I, I should be baptized by you. you shouldn't be, I shouldn't be baptizing you. Well, 
Jesus presses it and says, you will baptize me because we're going to fulfill all righteousness. And he's do he does that. And then the voice comes from heaven. And this is, this is Luke's account. In Luke 3, 21 and 22, he says, uh, the voice from heaven says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Well pleased. So there is a good amount of pleasure that the son's bringing the father at this point. Now, Luke goes in from this point into a genealogy. Now, Matthew, he puts the genealogy at the beginning of the gospel. Luke inserts it here, between the baptism and the testing. And I think there's a, a reason for that. He also does it in a different order. So Matthew starts with Abraham and works to Jesus. Luke begins with Jesus and works backwards. Now, he doesn't stop with Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jews, that nation. So with Matthew talking primarily to a Jewish audience, that made sense. You want to start with the father of their nation. But Luke, who had been slanted to more of a broad base, more Gentile uh, audience, he's not wanting to stop it at Abraham. Although he's in the genealogies, he keeps going and going until he finally reaches Adam. Adam son of Adam and then follows that up with son of God we hear Jesus called the son of God and son of man throughout scripture now this is personal opinion I believe it's founded by truth but take it for what it's worth it seems to me that that phrase is a descriptor for Jesus depending on your perspective among all of mankind who can claim to be the Son of God. Only one. Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only man who walked the earth who can claim to be Son of God. Who among the Trinity, among the Godhead, could claim to be the Son of Man? Only one. Jesus Christ was Son of Man and Son of God. He was that bridge that we talk about between man and God. And this genealogy is placed here leading us into the temptations of Christ for that purpose. We're going to test who this Jesus Christ is. It's going to be tested and it's through the tempting of the devil. The devil is intimately involved in this scene and it really kind of promotes the importance of what's going on here. We can count on one hand how many times the devil is on this scene doing the work himself. He usually has his minions doing this. He has the demons. He has those who are crazy and evil and the work of the world to do everything he needs. But in this case, he's taking the job himself. He's not leaving it for anybody else to do. We recall that he was in the garden and he tempted Adam and Eve at the fall of mankind. And we find that he is at the throne of God when he tests Job, saying, I can break him. Now he's here with an opportunity to test who this son of God is. Who is this son of man? So now having set the stage, let's go in and look at our text. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. 
Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him an, in, in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil, has, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that they may not, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The first point I'd like to make here is that this testing, this tempting, came after 40 days of fasting. I don't think it's by accident that it's 40 days. That should trigger our memories to remember, okay, you know, I remember Noah, 40 days and 40 nights it rained upon the earth. I remember the children of Israel, 40, days, 40 years wandering through the desert. Did you know that twice Moses went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and each time he was there for 40 days? Now, 40 days of no food. No food. And on the scene comes the devil. One of the things that happens here is that the devil, Satan himself, he wants the advantage. He wants your defenses down, so he waits till you're thirsty. He waits till you're hungry. He waits till you're tired, you're sick, you're depressed, you're scared. Something is occupying your energy and your time so he can sneak in and take you down. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, lions, they're powerful creatures. They can kill a lot of things at full strength but you know they typically kill the weakest they single them out and make work easy for them they take down the weak in the herd the young the unhealthy it's easy food easy prey the devil wants to press his advantage so he enters the scene when Jesus is at his weakest now Let's go back and read that first part again. Verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted slash tested by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? If. If you are the Son of God. Have you ever been asked that same question? If. 
Are you? Are you saved? Are you really? Are you good enough? Are you really a child of God? Does he really love you? His tactics haven't changed. He comes at you the same way he came at Jesus Christ. He attacks your identity. He wants you to fall. Well, Jesus is hungry. It's not about the bread. It's about who he is. He's hungry, so the bread is appetizing, and he is the Son of God, and he can turn that stone to bread. It's not, there's nothing intrinsically wrong about the bread. It's about yielding to Satan and trying to take a shortcut. And his answer, man shall not live by bread alone, is directly out of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Luke omits one little section out of that that Matthew puts in. He says, man should not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience who may know that scripture, and it made sense to them, whereas maybe with the Gentile audience, it didn't follow suit as much, and Luke omits it. But if you read Deuteronomy 8, he says, this is, talking, this is Moses talking to the people. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you will live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know that you, what was in your heart, whether you, or not you would keep his commandments. Sound familiar? He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, it wasn't even bread. It was called, what is it? They didn't know what it was, but it sustained them, and it came out of nowhere. And you only collected enough for that day. You trusted in God that he would provide. And Jesus here is being tested in the same way, but instead of failing, he succeeds, and he wields Scripture as a defense. An interesting side note here. In Exodus 34, I told you that Moses spent two times on the mountain for 40 days. The first time he came down from the mountain after receiving the law, he broke those tablets because, well, we'll get into that later, but he goes back up the second time to once again receive the law. And he's there 40 days. But listen to what it says in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 27. When the Lord said to Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote down on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. No bread, no water, just the words of God. Sound familiar? Moses lived on the word of God for 40 days and 40 nights. Nothing else. And as we see Jesus enter the scene, we know that he has been unfed. And now the devil comes along. And he wields the scripture 
accurately. He's able to defend himself with this verse. Now, if we go to Luke 4 and read the next section here, uh, 5 through 8. The devil led him up to a high place. Now, Matthew says a high mountain and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he says to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Quick side note, Luke has restructured uh, the order of the temptations, uh, and not the 1960s group. These are the actual temptations in the Bible. He reorganized them, whereas Matthew put them in most likely chronological order. And the way they identify that is that the final temptation, Matthew says, away from me, Satan. He's dismissing Satan. So that seems to be more of a chronological order. But Luke has a different uh, approach. He's leading us ever step closer to Jerusalem, closer to the destiny that Christ has before him of the cross. So there's a reason why they're out of order. And in this point, he is on a high mountain, and he is asked, uh, Jesus is asked by Satan to worship him, and he'd give him all these things. But he says, it was given to me. Now, conveniently, Satan omits who gave it to him. Who gave Satan all this? It wasn't his own power. It wasn't his own authority that allowed him to have it. So when Christ responds, he says, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Why? Because he is sovereign. He was the one that allowed Satan to have access to this. It was by his permission that he had the power to give this away to whomever he wanted to. So who is this Jesus? If you worship me, I will not. And in another one, another Deuteronomy excerpt, here he quotes out of Deuteronomy 6, uh, 13 through 15, and he says, this is once again Moses talking to the people. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. It wasn't long after that he wrote those things that the golden calf popped up and they broke the law before it ever came down off the mountain the first time. So Moses is reiterating to them, he's a jealous God, serve him only. It's important to point this out. Jesus puts that verse out there as a defense against Satan, serve only the Lord your God. And as you know, there has to be a temptation here for Jesus. If he is being truly tested or tempted, there has to be a draw. What's that draw? If the Lord is, if God is sovereign, what's the, what's the draw? Maybe it's something similar to what Thomas was talking about when we, we mentioned the uh, Garden of Eden and the tree of good and evil. Maybe it was a shortcut. 
Maybe it was a way of bypassing the cross, something that we know Jesus did not want to do, but was obedient in doing. There's no shortcut in God's plan. There's no easy way out for him. But he doesn't take it, although the temptation is there, he wields the word and defends himself. Have we tried to avoid discipleship? Have we tried to lessen the impact of discipleship on our lives when the Lord asks us to do things that are uncomfortable or scary, sends us places we don't want to go, has us talk to people we don't want to talk to? Are we afraid to give control over our lives to God and concern of what he might do with it? Thoughts to consider as we go to the third and final temptation. Luke 4, 9 through 13. The devil led him to Jerusalem. This is where Luke has been going the whole time. The devil has led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, hear it again, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him for an opportune time. Do not put your Lord your God to the test. This is something that came also out of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 6.16, he says, Do not, this is Moses talking again to the people, Do not put the Lord your God to this test as you did at Massa. Well, what's Massa? You've got to go back to, to uh, the chapter, chapter 17 of Exodus when Moses received water from the rock. The whole Israelite community was around him and they were quarreling with him and saying, we want the water. Uh, they're thirsty and they grumbled against Moses. So then Moses, in verse 4, cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take your hand and the staff, take, your, take in your hand the staff which you've struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb, strike the rock, and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and, all, and he called the place Massa, testing, and Meribah, quarreling, because of the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, it is, is the Lord not among us? So they were failing he gave them water, but when he tested them, they asked, is he not among us? So now here's Jesus saying, you know, or Satan trying to get him to use the scripture and say, is it going to happen? Are you going to test him and see if he will do this? Is he, gonna, is he going to bury you up? Well, he quotes the scripture not to test God. Do not put God to the test. You see, Satan has now 
seen twice that he's been refuted with Scripture, so he uses Scripture, or should I say he misuses Scripture. That's something we also need to pay attention to. Can Scripture be misused? Apparently so. But Jesus sees right through his misuse of Scripture and puts him straight. Once again, defending himself, saying, you do not test the Lord your God, and denies Satan the satisfaction. The concluding remark that Satan left for a more opportune time or another opportunity. Can you recall when that time was? He's always looking for another opportunity. He wasn't able to take Jesus down here. But let's go and see what he says in Luke chapter 22, verses 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread was called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Satan's always looking for another opportunity. That's one thing you can say about him. He's tenacious. He'll keep trying. We have to be alert. So as we looked at the temptations of Christ, what relevance does that have in our life? Well, I once talked to a preacher who says you should always have three main points, and those three main points should be reiterated at the end of your sermon. I have six. I have six because I am who I am, and I don't feel like limiting it to three. So I'm going to make six points here, and hopefully if you go back and read some of these scriptures Remind yourself of those points and help us during a time when we're being tested. First point I'd like to make is the devil attacks when, we, when he perceives an advantage. He doesn't attack you when you're strong. He attacks you when you're weak. Now sometimes that weakness may be things that are going well in your life, but you're wrapped up in the material world and your eyes are off the prize. But oftentimes it's when you're sick, tired, depressed, scared, hungry. Something has weakened you. Be alert. The second point I'd like to make. The test may not be as simple as making bread. It may be about yielding to the devil and not trusting God. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it's an issue. It's a simple matter of doing something that's good as opposed to something that's better. Do we trust God in these things? Are we wanting to make bread when we should be putting our faith in God? Third point, the devil's a liar. He will use any means to attack us, even Scripture. He will use Scripture like a club to beat you into submission to lead you off the path. So we have to do what Paul talked to Timothy about. If you recall 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and 
here's the kicker, who correctly handles the word of truth. Correctly handles. Look at the scripture and understand it before you beat somebody with it. Before you beat yourself with it. Read it in light of all scripture. Do not take things out of context. You see, Satan can wield scripture too. Look at the whole. Look at it in context. And correctly handle it. The fourth thing I'd like to point out. Satan wants to be your God. He appears in control right now. This world looks like it's under the rule of Satan, and it is. It was under the Roman times. He empowered them to do the things they did. We have things that look like, boy, we are the minority. We, we are the only ones speaking out against the evils in this world. But God is sovereign. Satan doesn't tell you that the only reason he has any power here is because God has allowed it. Our Father is sovereign. He's sovereign over viruses. He's sovereign over racial injustice. He's sovereign over violence and crime. And he's a sovereign over my concerns and the lies that are being told. God is sovereign. The fifth point I'd like to make. The devil's not done. He is still looking for an opportunity. So we need to walk around alert, constant vigilance. As one author once said, be vigilant in how you live your Christian life because he's going to use anything in his, to his advantage and he can wait patiently. He's looking for another opportunity. And last but not least, we are not Jesus. <laughs> surprise, surprise, surprise. We strive to be like Christ. That is our goal, to grow into the image of Christ. So don't hear that. I'm not saying that you don't grow to that image, but you're not him. What he did in the desert and what he did on the cross is something we couldn't accomplish. We're not capable. So we have to, once again, rely on him trust him when we say God is sovereign we also say Jesus is sovereign he has the control ultimately in this world although it appears right now he doesn't our father and our older brother are in control so as we face the coming days and as we face the challenges that are pressed upon us by media I would pray that we bring ourselves back to use Scripture to help us through this, to use it correctly, to realize that God is sovereign, and to be alert about the schemes of the devil. I pray you have a wonderful Sunday, and hope to see you again very soon. God bless.